Number two, if such be the nature, we will now inquire secondly, what are the means of growth and grace? These are very numerous. We will specify some of the more prominent. Number one, we notice first the private duties of religion, comprehending meditation, prayer, and reading the scriptures. I would say in general, in respect to all these duties, that before you approach them, you should throw down the burden of worldly care and vexation. The bird which possesses the fleetest wing will never fly if she is oppressed with an insupportable load. Neither will a soul ever mount up to heaven in its contemplations until it has broken away from earthly encumbrances. You should address yourself in these duties with great seriousness, for they bring you into the immediate presence of God on an errand which deeply involves your immortal interests and the absence of a serious spirit converts the external act into the most impious mockery. Moreover, they should all be performed, as I have elsewhere had occasion to remark in respect to one, at stated seasons, and especially in the morning and evening of each day. But the performance of these duties at stated seasons should not supersede the occasional performance of them, as the circumstances in which you are placed may furnish opportunity or suggest occasion for private religious exercises, you should consider it at once your duty and your privilege to engage in them. We will dwell for a moment a little more particularly on these several duties of religious meditation, considered as a means of growth and grace. It may be remarked that it is not merely a speculative but practical exercise. The object of it is not merely to discover truth, but when discovered, to turn it to some practical advantage. If, for instance, the mind dwells on the infinite greatness and majesty of God, the heart kindles with a sentiment of holy admiration. If the mind contemplates the unparalleled love and mercy of God, the heart glows with a spirit of devout gratitude. If the mind contemplates the depravity and ruin of man, and particularly if it turns its eye inward on personal guilt, the bosom heaves with emotions of godly sorrow. And so in respect to every other subject to which the thoughts may be directed, the mind contemplates them not as subjects of abstract speculation, but of personal interest. The subjects proper to exercise a mind in meditation are almost infinitely various. Whatever God has revealed to us, whether through the medium of his works, his ways, or his word, may form a profitable theme of contemplation for the Christian. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. The system of providence also exhibits a constant divine agency, and in the minutest as well as in the greatest events presents an impressive view of the character of God. And while the dispensations of providence in general furnish suitable subjects of reflection. This is especially true of those events which more immediately respect ourselves, whether they assume the form of mercies or afflictions. But the Bible is an inexhaustible treasury of truth. It contains things into which even angels desire to look, and which will no doubt awaken the interest and employ the curiosity of angels forever. Our own character and condition also constitute, though not one of the most pleasant, yet to us one of the most important subjects of meditation. From these various sources, then, you may derive materials for religious contemplation. And who will not say that here is enough to employ the mind in all the circumstances and periods of its existence? One of the most important forms of the duty of which I am speaking is self-examination, or meditating upon ourselves with a view to ascertain our own character and condition. 
You are to examine yourself in respect to your sins, the sins of your whole life, the sins of particular periods, especially of each passing day, the sins which most easily beset you, and all the circumstances of aggravation by which your sins have been attended. You are to examine yourself in respect to your spiritual wants, to inquire in which of the Christian graces you are especially deficient, through what avenue the world excels you must successfully, and of course at what point you need to be most strongly fortified. You are to examine yourself in respect to your evidences of Christian character, to inquire whether you really have the spirit of Christian obedience, and whether that period is daily gaining strength. This inquiry is to be conducted with great vigilance, otherwise the heart is so deceitful that you will deceive yourself in the very attempt to avoid being deceived. It must be prosecuted with unyielding determination, for the work is in itself so difficult and with all the discoveries which must result from it is so painful that without this spirit it will inevitably be abandoned. You must refer your character to the scriptural standard, to the law, if you would ascertain the extent of your departure from duty, to the gospel, if you would test your claim to the Christian character. And finally, in the spirit of humble dependence, let all your efforts be accompanied and crowned by the prayer, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The importance of self-examination and of the more general duty of meditation, of which this is a part, as a means of growth and grace, is not easy adequately to estimate. Meditation is necessary not only as a preparation for prayer, but is entering essentially into the nature of prayer. Nay, it is essential to every act of faith. It is the exercise by which the soul digests all the spiritual food which it receives. Moreover, it is a great importance as tending to promote spiritual economy. How many hours and days and years of the Christian's life are lost and worse and lost from the fact that his mind has not been disciplined to a habit of meditation? No inconsiderable part of your whole time has passed in solitude. Many of these hours at least might be redeemed by meditation for purposes of religious improvement. You may meditate not in the closet only, but in the field or the workshop or in the lonely walk or the midnight hour. You may meditate in circumstances in which you can do nothing else, and thus by the sweet and silent exercise of the soul you may keep yourself constantly under a sanctifying influence. In respect to the duty of private prayer, much of what might here naturally be said has been anticipated in another discourse. Let me only add that your private addresses at the throne of grace should be in a high degree particular, and should contemplate even the most minute circumstances of your condition. In social and public prayer, our petitions are necessarily in some degree of a general character, as they embrace wants which each individual has in common with many others. But every Christian's experience has something in it peculiar, and not only so, but it is subject to constant variation. And it is in the devotions of the closet alone that this variety of experience can be distinctly recognized. Endeavor then, by previous meditation, to gain an accurate knowledge of your necessities and sins on the one hand, and a deep impression of the mercies which you have received on the other. And by thus communing with your own heart, you will be prepared for close and particular communion with God. In reviewing a given period, do you find that you have been betrayed into levity of conversation or deportment? 
or that you have remained silent where you ought to have dropped a word in behalf of the cause of Christ? Do you find that your thoughts have been wandering on forbidding objects, or that you have yielded to the influence of some evil passion, have indulged in discontent, envy, pride, or revenge, or that from the want of vigilance you have been overcome by some sudden temptation? Let all this be a matter of distinct and solemn confession in your closet. Or have you received some signal manifestation of God's kindness in preserving you from temptation, or strengthening you for arduous duties, or imparting new vigor to your religious affections, and thus brightening your hope of heaven? Let these and all other private blessings be a subject of devout thanksgiving in your closet. Or do you find that you have easily besetting sins, or that duties await you which must involve great self-denial? or that temptations are about to throng upon you, which mere human resolution can never successfully oppose. In the closet you are to seek for grace accommodated to these and all other exigencies of your spiritual condition. In short, here you are to unburden your whole soul with the confidence of a child. You have sins and sorrows and wants, which it might be neither desirable nor proper that you should bring before the world, but there is not a sin of which you are guilty which you are not encouraged here to confess. Not a sorrow can agitate your breast, but you may venture here to tell it to a compassionate God. Not a want can you feel, but you may here ask with confidence to have it supplied. Let the exercise of private prayer be conducted in the manner which has now been described, and it cannot fail to exert a powerful influence in making you holy. But in proportion as it becomes general, Overlooking the more minute circumstances of your condition, it will degenerate into formality and thus defeat the great end which it is designed to accomplish. Closely connected with private prayer is a means of growth and grace as reading the scriptures. Sanctify them through thy truth as a part of the memorable prayer which our Lord offered in behalf of his disciples a little before he left the world. And the sentiment which it contains has been verified in the experience of every Christian from that hour down to the present. Not only is the word of God the incorruptible seed of the renewed nature, but it is that from which the spiritual principle derives its nourishment. And accordingly we find that those who have attained the most commanding stature in piety are those who have drawn most largely from this storehouse of spiritual bounty. But in order that you may realize the benefit which this exercise is adapted to secure, you must read the Word of God with devout and earnest attention. For like the food which nourishes a body, it must be digested in order to its being a means of nourishment to the soul. You must regard it as a Word of God, with the most reverent regard for its author, with a firm persuasion that it contains the words of eternal life, and with a conscious lying open to the authority of him who speaks in it. You must read it as being addressed particularly to yourself. You must apply what you read for your personal instruction or admonition as truly as if it had been spoken immediately to you by a voice from heaven. You must read it with a spirit of dependence on God as the author of all holy illumination, often sending up the prayer, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wonder things out of thy law. Read the Bible in this way, my young friends. And while new glories will constantly be unfolding to your delighted vision, as the stars thicken upon the eye at evening, the principle of spiritual life will be continually growing more vigorous and the evidence of your title to heaven more unquestionable. In connection with reading the scriptures, I may mention reading other books also of a serious and practical nature. 
There are books which are designed immediately to illustrate the meaning and to exhibit the harmony of the scriptures. There are other books whose more immediate object is to present a detailed view of the doctrines of the Bible and to show their connection with each other, their practical bearings both upon God and man. And there are other books still which are especially fitted to awaken and cherish a spirit of devotion, to withdraw the soul from the influence of external objects, and to bring it to commune with spiritual and invisible realities. Books of either the kinds to which I have now referred you may read with much advantage. Though you are always to recollect that, as the productions of uninspired men, they are to be tried by the law and the testimony. They are the lesser lights in religion which borrow all their luster from the sun. It deserves here to be remarked that the different private exercises of which I have spoken are intimately connected and are fitted to exert a mutually favorable influence on each other. Meditation, while it composes the mind to a devotional frame, and brings before it subjects for prayer, applies the truths of God's word as means of sanctification. Prayer not only leaves the soul in a state most favorable to meditation, but spreads over the sacred page an illuminating and heavenly influence. Reading the scriptures at once furnishes materials for meditation, and kindles the spirit, while it supplies the language of prayer. Let these several duties then be joined together so far as possible in your daily practice, and while each will contribute to render the others more interesting and profitable, they will together exert a powerful influence in your Christian improvement. Number two. Another important means of growth and grace is Christian intercourse. The utility of social intercourse has been felt in every department of knowledge and action. He who desires to make distinguished attainments in anything can scarcely fail highly to estimate the society of kindred minds engaged in similar pursuit. And accordingly we find that some of the most brilliant discoveries in science have resulted from the intercourse which great minds have had with each other. And as it is with other things, so it is with religion. Hardly anything can serve more effectually to invigorate our religious affections or to heighten the interest with which we regard the objects of faith than a close and fraternal intercourse with Christian friends, whereas the neglect of such intercourse is at once a cause and symptom of spiritual declension. That your intercourse with Christian friends may be profitable, let it be frequent. Every consideration which should induce you to cultivate this intercourse at all should induce you to engage it frequently. And besides, if religion is made the topic of conversation only at distant intervals, the almost certain consequence will be that such conversation will never awaken much interest or be prosecuted with much advantage, whereas by being frequently introduced, it can hardly fail, through the influence of habit on the one hand, an unincreased degree of religious feeling on the other, to become a most pleasant and edifying exercise. Let a few Christian friends appropriate an hour of each week to the interchange of pious sentiments and feelings, to compare with each other their spiritual progress, and to strengthen each other for their spiritual conflicts, and let this exercise be continued regularly and perseverantly, and you may expect that its influence will be felt in a rapid and vigorous growth of piety. The place of such a meeting will soon come to be regarded as a Bethel, and the hour consecrated to it will be hailed with devout joy and gratitude. But these are by no means the only seasons in which you should avail yourselves of this privilege. In the common and daily walks of life there are occasions constantly occurring on which you may take sweet counsel with your fellow Christians. 
Why may not the friendly call and the social interview, instead of being perverted to purposes of idle ceremony, be made subservient to spiritual improvement? Is it not far more grateful to review in our past with a friend and conversing on topics connected with Christian experience or with the kingdom of Christ than one which you have frittered away in mere trifling intercourse without having uttered a word worthy of your Christian character or Christian hopes? Moreover, this intercourse should be more or less unreserved according to circumstances. I would not by any means recommend an indiscriminate disclosure of your religious exercises, this would not only appear to be, but there is reason to fear that it would actually be, the operation of spiritual pride, than which nothing can be more offensive either to God or man. As a general direction, I would say that while you may profitably hold religious intercourse with all Christians, that of a more close and confidential kind should ordinarily be confined to intimate friends, those who will at once value and reciprocate your Christian confidence, you are by no means, of course, to decline religious conversation with a Christian friend, because there may be those present who are not interested in it. But you are so far to regard their presence as to endeavor to give the conversation the direction which will be most likely to minister to their profit as well as your own. And finally, I would say that all your religious intercourse ought so far as possible to be accompanied or followed by prayer. This will serve at once to strengthen the tie that binds your hearts together, to give additional interest to your intercourse, and to draw upon it the blessing of God. Is it not the melancholy fact that this most delightful duty is often neglected in the circumstances of which I speak, because it is considered a matter of delicacy? God forbid, my young friends, that you should ever for a moment yield to such a sentiment. Surely that is not only false but criminal delicacy, which by forbidding you to kneel down with the companion in the Christian life at the throne of mercy would intercept some of the richest blessings of God's grace. Number three, I notice as another of the means of growth and grace the observance of the Sabbath in connection with public worship. On this subject, it must be acknowledged that there prevails extensively a lamentable deficiency in Christian practice. I refer not here to those who openly outrage holy time, by perverting it to worldly business or amusement. They, of course, cut themselves off from every claim to Christian character. But I refer rather to those who, professing to sanctify the Sabbath, yet adopt a low standard of duty, and take little pains to exclude the world either from their thoughts or conversation, that you may avoid this evil and secure the benefit to be derived from a proper observance of holy time, attend to the following directions. Make it an object religiously to observe the whole Sabbath. I do not here attempt to decide the question at what time the Sabbath commences. I only insist that your practice on this subject should be consistent with your principle. Whenever you believe the Sabbath begins, and begin to observe it. And remember that it is just as criminal to devote the first half to secular purposes as any other part of the day. Let all your worldly concerns be arranged to meet the earliest demands of holy time, that thus you may avoid the wretched practice of suffering the secular business of the week to crowd upon the sacred duties of the Sabbath. Be equally careful, on the other hand, that you do not curtail the sacred day by suffering your spirituality gradually to decline with the sun. I urge this counsel upon you, the rather from the fact that the error to which I refer so extensively prevails that you will be in danger of falling into it almost unconsciously. 
Remember that he who has fixed the stamp of his authority on the Sabbath has left the impress of holiness equally on all its hours. Remember that if you begin the Sabbath too late or close it too early, you are in either case guilty of robbing God. I would say in the next place, keep the day strictly holy. With the low standards of the world on this subject, have nothing to do. Remembering that the command of Jehovah is resting upon you, that you should not think your own thoughts or find your own pleasures. Wherever you are, recollect this command is to be strictly obeyed. What though you may be thrown into the company of those who profane the Sabbath, or what though worldly courtesy should seem to claim that you should relax a little from your accustomed strictness for the sake of making yourself agreeable to irreligious friends. You have no right to listen to any such demands for a moment, and you cannot venture on the experiment of a compliance, but at the hazard of fearfully provoking God and bringing upon yourself crimson guilt. That you may comply with the spirit of the divine command, take heed that you avoid everything inconsistent with the devout observance of the day. Never allow yourself in any reading which is not strictly religious. Beware that you do not, from conversing on subjects which have a remote bearing upon religion, slide into conversation of a mere secular character. The temptation to this will sometimes be almost irresistible. Guard against the indulgence of vain and worldly thoughts. For though the eye of man can take no cognizance of these, they fall within the full observation of him who searches the heart. But in order to keep holy the Sabbath, you have much to perform as well as much to avoid, with the exception of what are called works of necessity and mercy. And in respect to these, an enlightened conscience is to be the judge. The whole day is to be devoted to duties strictly religious. Beside attending on the public worship of the sanctuary, in respect to an absence from which you are never likely to admit of an excuse, you are to devote a considerable part of the Sabbath to the private exercises of meditation, prayer, and reading the scriptures and other religious books. And some part of it may be profitably spent, as you have opportunity in serious conversation. It is also an employment perfectly consistent with the sacredness of the day to communicate religious instruction and for this a noble opportunity is presented by Sabbath schools. Keeping the Sabbath in the manner which I have now described, you may reasonably expect the blessings of the Lord of the Sabbath and a rapid advance of piety. I have spoken of your attendance on the public worship of God. This is so important a part of the business of the Sabbath as to require distinct consideration. Let me say then that you ought always to prepare yourself for this duty by secret prayer by imploring the divine blessings upon the exercises in which you are to engage, and divine aid to enable you to engage in them with a proper spirit. On your way to the house of God, let your meditations and if you converse your words be such as to prepare you the better for the solemnities in which you are to mingle. And when you pass the consecrated threshold, realize that you have come hither for no other purposes than to worship God and to listen to His truth. It is no part of your errand here to engage in worldly civilities or hear worldly news or count the number of strangers and prepare to comment upon their appearance. Your business here lies between God and your own souls, and it will never advance while your attention is absorbed by external objects. Guard then against the idle gaze and the wandering imagination. Make the prayers and the praises which are here offered your own. Let every truth which is here delivered be applied for your instruction, admonition, or consolation.
and feel best satisfied when, on retiring from the sanctuary, your thoughts have been least upon your fellow mortals and most upon God. Let not the good impressions which you have received be effaced by worldly conversation at the close of divine service or on the way to your dwelling. Decline all conversation which will be likely to exert such an influence, even though it should be solicited, for it is far safer to offend man than God. And avail yourself of the first opportunity to enter your closet, to supplicate the blessing of God, to follow the service in which you have been engaged, and to bring home the truth which you have heard more impressively to your own soul. They who wait upon the Lord in this manner shall renew their strength, and shall have just occasion to say, A day in thy courts is better than a thousand. In connection with this article, let me direct your attention for a moment a little more particularly to your duty in relation to social religious exercises during the week. These are never to be elevated to a level with the public services of the Sabbath. The latter are prescribed by divine authority. The former are left to the regulation of human prudence. But so chilling is the atmosphere of the world to religious feeling that the Christian greatly needs the aid which these weekly services are fitted to impart to keep alive the spirit of devotion. They who fear the Lord will desire not only to speak often one to another, but to unite their hearts in prayer and to open them to the reception of the truth. While therefore you regard such exercises as manner only of Christian prudence, you should consider them important helps in the religious life and if at any time you grow weary of attending them, it will be well to inquire whether there is not a proportional decline in respect to other Christian duties. No doubt services of this kind may be multiplied to an improper extent so as to interfere with duties of paramount claims, and no doubt they may be rendered unprofitable and even injurious by being improperly conducted. At the same time, I am constrained to believe that these objections to these services have arisen more frequently from want of religion than anything else, and that the spirit which treats them with contempt would, if it were armed with power, blot out the Sabbath and bring every institution of God into the dust. Number four, the last means of growth and grace, which I shall here notice, is attendance on the Lord's Supper, that you may receive the benefits which this ordinance is fitted to impart, Endeavor to gain a deep impression of its nature and design. It is a commemorating ordinance in which we are to remember the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, though he was rich for our sakes, became poor. It is a confessing ordinance by which we profess ourselves to be the disciples of Christ and openly renounce the world as our portion. It is a communicating ordinance in which the blessings of God's grace are communicated for the renovation of our spiritual strength. It is a covenanting ordinance in which God declares himself our God, and we devote ourselves anew to his service. The more you reflect on the nature and design of this institution, the more you will discover in it of wisdom and grace, the more you will derive from it of light and strength and comfort. Endeavor, moreover, to be faithful in your immediate preparation for this ordinance. This preparation consists generally in all the private religious exercises of which I have spoken, but more especially in self-examination. Let a man examine himself, says the Apostle, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. The public service which has been instituted in our churches is preparatory to this ordinance. You are also devoutly and punctually to attend. And let me say that if you are voluntarily and habitually absent from that service, 
You not only wrong your own soul, but carry upon you the mark of a backslider. Cases may indeed occur in which the Lord's table may be spread before you unexpectedly, in which you have no opportunity for immediate preparation. And then it is no doubt your duty to partake, and you may hope for the blessings of God. But where preparation is voluntarily neglected, you may expect that the ordinance will be to you a mere dead letter, and it will be well if you do not eat and drink judgment to yourself. In your attendance on the ordinance, be careful that you cherish the feelings which the occasion is adapted and designed to awaken. You should yield yourself to devout admiration of that grace and wisdom and glory, which shine forth in the plan of redemption, and which seem concentrated around the Redeemer's cross. You are to behold with fervent gratitude the amazing sacrifice which constituted the price of all your joys and hopes, the price of your immortal crown. You are to look inward with deep humility upon your own sin as part of the guilty cause of your Redeemer's sufferings. You are to look upward with a holy joy to a reigning Savior and to a bright inheritance. You are to renew your resolutions of devotedness to Christ and to determine in the strength of His grace on a course of more unyielding self-denial. You are to cherish a spirit of brotherly love towards your fellow Christians, and a spirit of good will towards the whole family of man, and you are to let your benevolent affections go out in fervent prayer for the revival of God's work. Thus you are to wait upon the Lord at His table, but that you may not, after all, defeat the design of your attendance, carry the spirit of the ordinance back with you to your closet, and there let it be fanned into a still brighter flame. Carry it with you into the world, into scenes of care and temptation, and let it certify to all with whom you associate that you have been with Jesus. That was from the book Lectures to Young People by William Sprague. The last couple paragraphs of this tape are taken from the book Thoughts on Religious Experience, The Counsels of the Aged to the Young, and it is so fitting to add to the exhortations that have already been made. Our author writes, Govern your tongue. More sin, it is probable, is committed and more mischief done by this small member than all other ways. The faculty of speech is one of our most useful endowments, but it is exceedingly liable to abuse. He who knows how to bridle his tongue is therefore in Scripture denominated a perfect man. And again of him who seemeth to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, it is declared that that man's religion is vain. The words which we utter are a fair index of the moral state of the mind. By thy word, says our Lord, shalt thou be justified, and by thy word shalt thou be condemned. Not only are the sins of the tongue more numerous than others, but some of them are the most heinous of which man can be guilty. Even that one sin which has no forgiveness is a sin of the tongue. Not only should all profaneness and obscenity and falsehood be put far away, but you should continually endeavor to render your conversation useful. Be ever ready to communicate knowledge, to suggest profitable ideas, to recommend virtue and religion, to rebuke sin and to give glory to God. Beware of evil speaking. A habit of detraction is one of the worst which you can contract, and it is always indicative of an envious and malignant heart. Instead of prostituting this active and useful member to the purpose of slander, employ it in defending the innocent and the injured. Permit me to suggest the following brief rules for the government of the tongue. Avoid speaking too much. In the multitudes of word there wanteth not sin. If you have nothing to communicate which can be useful, be silent. Think before you speak. 
how many painful anxieties would be prevented by obeying this simple common sense precept. Especially be cautious about uttering anything in the form of a promise without consideration. Be conscientiously regardful of truth, even to a tittle in all that you say. Never speak what will be likely to excite bad feelings of any kind in the minds of others. Be ready on all suitable occasions to give utterance to good sentiments, especially such as may be useful to the young. Listen respectfully to the opinions of others, but never fail to give your testimony modestly but firmly against error. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. I conclude my counsels to the young by a serious and affectionate recommendation to every one who hears these words, to make immediate preparation for death. I know that the gay youth are unwilling to hear the subject mentioned. There is nothing which casts a greater damp upon their spirits than the solemn fact that death must be encountered, and that no earthly possessions or circumstances can secure us from becoming his victims on any day. But if it is acknowledged that this formidable evil is inevitable, and that the tenure by which we hold our grasp of life is very fragile, why should we act so unreasonably? And may I say madly is to shut our eyes against the danger. If indeed there was no way of preparing to meet this event, there might be some reason for turning away our thoughts from immediate destruction. But if by attention and exertion it is possible to make preparation for death, then nothing can be conceived more insane than to refuse to consider our latter end. How often are we called to witness the decease of youth in the midst of all their pleasures and prospects? Such scenes have been exhibited within the observation of all of you. Dear friends and companions have been snatched away from the sight of some of you. The grave is closed upon many whose prospects of long life were as favorable as those of their survivors. Now, my dear young friends, what has so frequently happened in relation to so many others may take place with regard to some of you. This year you may be called to bid farewell to all your earthly prospects, and all your beloved relatives, the bare possibility of such an event ought to have the effect of engaging your most serious attention and of leading you to immediate preparation. Do you ask what preparation is necessary? I answer, reconciliation with God and a meekness for the employments and enjoyments of the heavenly state. Preparation for death includes repentance towards God for all our sins, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and reliance on His atoning sacrifice, regeneration of heart, and reformation of life, and finally a lively exercise of piety, accompanied with a comfortable assurance of the divine favor. In short, genuine and lively piety forms the essence of the needful preparation. With this your death will be safe, and your happiness after death secure. But to render a deathbed not only safe but comfortable, you must have a strong faith and clear evidence that your sins are forgiven, and that you have passed from death unto life. Be persuaded, then, before you give sleep to your eyes, to commence your return unto God, from whom, like lost sheep, you have strayed. Prepare to meet your God. Be also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. 
Seek deliverance from the fear of death by a believing application to him who came on purpose to deliver us from this bondage. With his presence and guidance, we need fear no evil. Even while passing through the gloomy valley in shadow of death, he is able by his rod and his staff to comfort us and to make us conquerors over this last enemy. Archibald Alexander, Thoughts on Religious Experience. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.